Hello and thank you for joining us for this edition of the Stratfor podcast, focused on geopolitics and world affairs from stratfor.com. I'm your host, Ben Sheen. Today, we're talking about baseball, or more to the point, the geopolitics of baseball. From imperialist expansions to subtle resistance, including just how and why different cultures are driven to make an adopted sport their own, today's conversation is part of our series of contributor perspectives on the geopolitics of sports. We'll be joined by Professors Thomas Hunt and Tolga Rezertschu from the Department of Kinesiology and Health Education at the University of Texas at Austin, both regular contributors to the topic on Stratfor Worldview. They'll also be joined by Stratfor Senior Global Analyst Matthew Bate. Thanks again for joining us for today's discussion on the geopolitics of baseball. Well, Thomas, Tolga, Matt, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having us. So as any listener to this podcast should already know, we, we look at matters of geopolitics and, and global significance. But a big part of that really is when we look at culture and, and how certainly how cultures evolve over time and the things that shape them. And a huge part of that is quite obviously sports and sporting events, which have kind of occupied a place in uh, a collective psyche that, that few other things can hold claim to. Uh, a question I guess I always have is, is how do certain sports come about? How do they spread and um, how do they gain this sort of cultural relevance? And certainly, as we've talked about this between the group of us, baseball does rise to the fore. So this seems like a good place to, to start off. Yeah, absolutely. We kicked off this recent geopolitics of sport column with a look at how baseball got to Japan, which I think many people, including us, as we look closer into the history of it, are surprised at how relatively early that began, you know, within a decade or two of the game being formalized in the U.S. And we tend to take such a you know, American exceptionalist view of baseball as our own game. And I, what I think is, is quite interesting is how quickly it spreads, especially uh, beyond Japan, but throughout the U.S. sphere of influence in Latin and Central America. And so uh, we were thinking that that might be kind of fun to take a little bit of a tour and, and take a look at who plays what and, and how they got there. No, it sounds absolutely perfect. And, and certainly one of the things I struggle with being an Englishman is that we created all these sports like cricket and tennis, and now uh, the entire world is better at them than we are. So how do we really see uh, the proliferation of baseball in the world? You know, some things are, are perhaps, once you take a look at them, less surprising uh, than you'd imagine. It tends to be that people take their games and their food and their culture and the things they do uh, with them. So when we look at sports in Latin America, it's really... To, to oversimplify things, at the team sport, at the spectator sport level, you've got baseball countries and you've got soccer countries and a couple hybrid countries. And not to be crude, but their history is essentially a game of which white man got there first and with their sports in tow. And, and, and Ben, some of your country folk also got there, but I think the class, uh, the class exemptions of cricket led to uh, the proliferation of football or soccer uh, as opposed to cricket. And then also when the rejection of British colonialism started much earlier than the rejection of other parts of colonialism within, within Latin America. And I think we also, you know, see that extending longer when you look at, you know, the spread of cricket, for example, whether it's being still popular in India, South Africa, places where colonialism lasted a much longer time for the Brits. Yeah, absolutely. There's also another colonial story here that, that is not British-based but Spanish-based um, in the case of Cuba. So I think there are all sorts of interesting imperial colonial dimensions to this. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, I think we'll end up circling back to Cuba because it, it is perhaps the most interesting and on the surface kind of head-scratching case of an unparalleled love for baseball uh, with sort of an unparalleled historic, at least symbolic, uh, distaste for everything else uh, American. And I think, you know, we're, baseball is, is our subject today given the sort of timing of the year. 
But in a, it might make more sense almost to, to start with the, the soccering end of things and sort of work our way back to baseball. And this may be what, what, mo- what most listeners and most kind of big sports fans are familiar with is that, no surprise, the majority of Latin America, especially South America, is, you know, soccer land or football land, not to offend some listeners. Uh, and those stories are, are surprisingly or uh, unsurprisingly pretty straightforward. Uh, you've got the Dutch in Paraguay in the late. 1800s. You've got the Brits throughout the continent, again, in the late 1800s. Uh, Specifically, we can blame the Scots for Brazil's success and dominance in the game, which may or may not be a a claim to fame. But it kind of follows that trajectory throughout the continent, especially in South America. In Peru, you've got sort of a hybrid um, Peruvian students coming back from studies in England, but as well as English sailors in the port of Callao. Uh, which is a big Pacific sort of transition or meeting point uh, for people and cultures. And so the, so soccer, football takes root pretty heavily throughout uh, that part of the globe by the turn of the 20th century. And it doesn't, you know, as we know, it doesn't ever really leave. Uh, the first World Cup is played in Uruguay in 1930. They win a couple of those um, before eventually coming back to some global uh, success in this century. But maybe it makes sense to move from there to look at baseball. And that's the question that I have. When you've got a sport as popular and firmly rooted as as soccer obviously is in uh, the Americas, how does baseball get a toehold? Well, that's what's interesting. And as we look, it, it really just kind of appears to be that, you know, most of these situations were either or. There's, a, there's an interesting mix of, you know, what we might call the hybrid countries. And, um, and even baseball fans may be kind of most surprised. Uh, in Nicaragua and Panama, the national team sport is still considered to be baseball. And this uh, owes mostly in both those countries to the early American influence. Again, uh, all these things are happening around the same time, the late 1800s, early 1900s. And those are really kind of entrenched there until, you know, the last couple generations. Baseball goes out of flavor with the Nicaraguan Civil Wars, although it's made a bit of a comeback. I think I was reading they've got a professional league since 2004 or five. Uh, but in both Nicaragua and Panama, soccer seems to really kind of take over by the uh, by the end of the 20th century. And what we've seen that kind of backed up with their creeping success in CONCACAF uh, World Cup qualifiers and regional tournaments and stuff. So, the, so those two countries present kind of an interesting hybrid, as well as Mexico, which, you know, owing to proximity is perhaps not very surprising at all. And in Mexico, I think sometimes... Uh, you know, we forget that our neighbors to the south, it's a big country and it's got states and differences. And just like in the U.S., you've got football states and basketball states that there are actually states within Mexico. I think Oaxaca is one where baseball is the clear in a way, um, you know, big time team sport. But overall, it's very much a soccering nation, which then I guess gets us to those oddballs you mentioned, who plays baseball. And I think as uh, big baseball fans will know from a lot of the players who've broken through over the years, you've got Puerto Rico, the Dominican Republic, Venezuela, and Cuba. I mean, Cuba, I mean, a lot of it's, if you just go back through the history, a lot of it's also going into the Negro Leagues. Negro Leagues had their summer league there, for example, or their like they said, winter league. Um, so it was a very common connections within those kinds of societies as well to have a connection that was not just based in kind of the U.S. zone of influence through, I guess, what you would say, like U.S. military power, or U.S. social power, things like that, but also just the, the other parts of the culture within the United States that were able to connect into these societies. I mean, I think that's also what you also have similar within the within the Dominican Republic, for that matter, and also the, the, co- the colonial architecture there is obviously um, a big part of it. So one of the funny things that I've always 
found fascinating is that why is Cuba or why is baseball so popular on one half of the island of Dominica? And it was a lot of it because of people fleeing Cuba afterwards, but they couldn't really, you know, they didn't have the, the same kind of cultural connections to the to, to to Dominican Republic, which was, you know, a different colony of Spanish, just like, like Cuba's was. So I think there's a, these weird dynamics that allowed it to, you know, proliferate throughout um, the Caribbean. And if you actually look at the development of baseball in terms of the way that they've exported players to the United States recently, you only recently had waves outside of Cuba. Cuba, you had connections going back, you know, throughout the beginning of the 1900s. You didn't have baseball players coming from the Dominican Republic or from Panama for the most part until the, la- the latter half of the uh, 20th century. So I think that's an interesting parallel about just the way that it spreads throughout it as opposed to just the colonial rejection of it, I guess, in some ways. No, that's a great point. And yeah, and there is some evidence, I think, in in um, the Dominican Republic, historically, it was always sort of credited to U.S. occupation, essentially, of the island in um, during and post-World War One years. But some historians have shown that there's evidence uh, that Cubans actually had kind of cross-pollinated and brought the game by the end of the 19th century. And so it's, it is interesting to think that by then you already have non-Americans spreading the quintessentially American game. And, and like I said, those sort of Caribbean countries really do form a major core of the game, both uh, as sort of as baseball playing nations and also as contributors to the major leagues and sort of international competition now. And, and, in all their cases, like Matt said, it's kind of a complex and multifaceted history, but the arrival generally kind of goes with American military or American business. The oil companies in Venezuela are sort of seen as as the major driving force there. Um, but I think it really all comes to a head in Cuba. And that's what's so curious to me, because when we look at these countries that, that traditionally lie within the U.S. sphere of influence, you know, Cuba falls within that. But their past has certainly not, you know, they've had a fractious relationship with the United States. And, and certainly there's been a lot of communist influence there. So how how does baseball have such a strong following in Cuba when it's kind of such this American associated sport? And you think it would be rejected outright, but that's certainly not the case, is it? I think you have to move further back in history to to understand Cuba. So baseball moved to Cuba in the mid-1800s, and it was very much seen as an anti-Spanish sport. So when, when Spain was in control, attendance at bullfighting matches was virtually mandatory. And so the local Cuban population took up baseball as, as a statement against that. And so we look to the earlier period where America wasn't in charge to understand why baseball was so popular there. So that lays the groundwork. But um, how did that actually continue to be a, a theme, especially once the, the communists arrived? You see over and over again in sports studies that local populations adopt the imperial power sport and then in a way uses it as a site of, of soft resistance. So just as in the case of Indian cricket against British cricket, we see the same, same sort of trend in Cuba where it was adopted, it was used for Cuba's own purposes and an independent type of Cuban baseball grew up as sort of a resistance mechanism to America. Yeah, it's kind of another great example of our you know, increasingly more nuanced understanding of cultural globalization or globalization as not just these sort of one-way top-down adoptions, but these really kind of complex interpretations and you know, remixes almost where we kind of take something and, and, and make it our own. And so that's why, I mean, it's the beauty of you know, our human ability to make sports mean something. At the end of the day, whether it's in the U.S. or in Cuba, it's just some guys hitting a ball with a stick, which is 
you know, it can be a maddening process. And but, running in circles. <laughs> and running in circles uh, to the left, <laughs> except in the Finnish version. Uh, it's a conversation for another day. But so, yeah, so I think that it shows how the same game could be used first to sort of resist Spanish colonial identity, create something of a Cuban identity, while also allowing it at the same time to resist American influence by being a kind of point of confluence and a point of interaction with American businessmen and military and they just the general American presence in the first half of the 20th century. So I think actually I'm thinking of a really good parallel to think about here though is I think over the last 20 to 30, 40 years, where have we seen baseball grow the most? Like culturally, you know, exposing. it's been in Japan for a long time, but we've seen it growing in Taiwan. We've seen it growing in South Korea. We've even seen it, you know, starting to grow in places like China. Is that maybe the next wave of rejectionism of either the U.S. or in this case, possibly the U.S. closest ally in the region, Japan, within that same kind of a framework? So if we go back through the Japanese history, we do see, for example, um, I believe Sadahara Oh was half Korean. And that actually was a big cultural problem for them because he was half Korean. He was the biggest home run hitter of the time. So I'm wondering if we're not starting to see the, the the groundwork for that within Asia that we're just that we saw you know 150 years earlier in South America and Latin America. Yeah, I think all these flows just sort of demonstrate the malleability of these things, you know, and our ability to sort of uh, adapt things to our needs because the games are fun on some primal level and they present a challenge that's interesting and novel enough to pursue. Uh, and I think that's why it eventually just in the Cuban scenario it, it stuck, you know, by the time. You know, they had revolutionary and other concerns. They didn't really have time to figure out a game that necessarily went with it. So it they changed the interpretation of it. They deprofessionalized the league, became an amateur-only league, and it wasn't they were playing an American imported sport. They were playing Cuban baseball. And I think that's still kind of, despite the changing times and the number of defecting players to play professionally in the U.S. and eventually as relations change, it's the opening up of those professional relationships. I still think there's a sense that there's Cuban baseball and that's different than American baseball. We'll get to the second part of our conversation on the geopolitics of baseball in just one moment. But if you're interested in learning more about the connections between geopolitics and sports, be sure to visit us at worldview.stratfor.com. Thomas Hunt and Tolga Zertschew's regular commentaries on the topic are available in the expanded Global Perspectives section on the website. From how Japan got baseball, to the drivers behind international doping scandals or the history of golf in the People's Republic of China, you'll find their insights alongside those from thought leaders from across fields and industries. Now let's get back to our conversation with Thomas, Tolga and Stratford's Matthew Bay on the geopolitics of baseball. So how have we seen these relationships develop over time? Because clearly there's this aspect of where you, you take something that is perhaps unfamiliar and you, you play with it enough that it becomes your own and then you imprint your own style on it. And then you ironically can go back to influence the, the originator of the sport. So how have we seen these cycles play out, certainly in the modern era? Well, it's tough to watch baseball now without realizing that there is a huge Latin American influence, that some of the greatest players in the world are coming from that region. And so the impact has been, has been massive. The other way I think you can flip that around is you've also seen kind of the exodus of African-American baseball players, for example. They've gone on. You've seen, you know, the the sports going in the inner cities. It's not baseball like it might have been, you know, 50, 40, 60 years ago. It's now basketball or something else or football, something like that. So you're starting to see almost like a void is filling out there with other players coming in that are imported essentially from – to play. And I think that's the other thing that you just is so striking when you watch when you watch baseball these days. And 
going back to your point about how how the the games can evolve to just you know structurally be different. If you just look at and watch a game in in Japan or South Korea, you just see how it's a very different environment. You know, you have cheerleaders in some of the places in South Korea. You have a different style of game. It's, it's not as much you know power pitching, you know, throwing 100 miles an hour as much as it is a finesse. You then can look at games when you're looking at yeah, Cuban players or or people in uh, Latin America. It's much more about having an aggressive style to, to the way that you play as opposed to a more measured style that you see in, in the United States, and which is just, you know, the different kinds of dynamics are just kind of interesting to watch. And when you actually import players into the United States from either the, you know, the Japanese baseball leagues or the Cuban baseball leagues, you start to see those talent sets in the way that the, not just the cultural aspects of the, you know, having culture shock coming over here and playing, but also just the style. It's very, very different. So if you look at, you know, the, the big, oh, a famous example of that is um, there's like a saying in the Dominican Republic, you don't get out, get off the island by walking, you get off the island by hitting. So you don't, so I mean, that's kind of been an explanation of why a lot of them are more aggressive swingers. And if you look in, in Japan where you, you have much more of a culture that's, you know, stylized towards, you know, split finger fastballs or, or forkballs. So you see in the U.S., when those pitchers come over here, they can dominate really quickly because of American players just aren't really used to seeing that kind of an action on the pitch. So, I mean, there's all these kinds of different dynamics, which are just fascinating. I mean, I'm not sure there's a much of a reason of why they evolved that way, but they just have because they have been operating in their own little boxes for so long. It's almost foolish to try to explain why these things evolve that way. Uh, what's amusing is when the the sporting media, especially the American sporting media, tries to explain these things, it inevitably falls to some kind of outmoded overly generalized cultural stereotypes, right? right? The Dominican players strike out because they're hot-blooded Latins or whatever it is, you know? And the Japanese are, you know, if you hear Ichiro Suzuki described as meticulous one more time, I'm going to lose my <laughs> mind. Um, but it kind of neglects that they're coming out of systems that play the game in a fundamentally different way, which, you know, maybe to bounce back to soccer is something that because the game has been so obviously global for so long, uh, that's not taken... For granted, you still hear some of it, you know, the methodical Germans and the flashy Brazilians. But usually when we talk about international differences in styles of play in soccer, it's grounded on an analysis of the development of their tactics and actual approaches to the game and not some sort of mythical, you know, it's in the blood, it's in the water sort of thing that still is overwhelmingly the the diagnosis of of baseball players making but, the transition. <laughs> I mean, even look in the United States style of baseball, how many evolutions has that gone through? I mean, we have the dead ball era, which is at an era where, you know, home runs and offense weren't a big thing. And then it goes immediately into an era where things adjust. They have a huge offensive thing, uh, offensive explosion through home runs, Babe Ruth, et cetera. Everybody knows that story. But then you go back into the 1960s, you actually have a revolution back to pitching. Then it becomes more de- defense, speed-oriented, and then we have the steroid era after that. And then now we're back into this kind of you know dominant pitching environment, which is kind of you know starting to you know have runs be a little more at a premium. Strikeouts are up, but home runs aren't down. So I mean, you start to see you're seeing evolutions in every society's games. Even it's most maybe it's most stark just because we have as much of an awareness of it in the U.S. style itself. That's so well put. We we tend to really um, we have a really bad historical memory when it comes to the games we know the version that we are most familiar with that we're most currently exposed to and we have a real nostalgic sort of whitewashed approach to the past and we don't realize you know especially when rule changes are brought into play we all kind of especially traditionalists seem to kind of really freak out and that happened this year with some changes to the timing of baseball games but if you look back at the history of all these sports it's a constant push and pull adjusting rules adjusting styles of play to try to kind of you know make sense of the best way to win, but also just reflections of the times and the desires of spectators and players alike to kind of influence the game. Yeah, but I mean, I, I think, you know, you bring up this romanticism, you know, looking back at the glory days or, or the past and, and future of a 
sport or anything like that. I mean, we can go back to the United States. I mean, look at the golden era of baseball might be the 1950s for, for what people think of it. However, if you go back to like the golden era of societies or the golden era of countries, you have those very similar dynamics coming through in geopolitics. I mean, Ben, I'm sure you're well aware of the cultural stereotypes of, you know, the golden age of uh, the British Empire. I don't you know, I'm, I'm not from the UK, so I can't really, you know, comment on that from my own perspectives. But I mean, you, it is something that you start to see just broadly speaking, whether it doesn't necessarily have to be in baseball or in any other sport, as much as you just see within a society's own kind of, you know, viewpoints of where there are where there are places in the world. Well, absolutely. And there's always that tendency to look back with these rose tinted spectacles, at, you know, the, the pinnacle of your career or your society, or your culture. And it certainly seems that way with, with sports as well. You, you can perform, you know, certainly on the, the microcosmic level, you can have a team that performs very well and suddenly has a drought for years when they simply then to perform. And it, it's a tough thing to reconcile, I think. But it's a good way to bring it back round to the whole sort of geopolitical angle. And we see all these things play out really in, in sports and, and certainly in, in baseball and football as well. I think uh, on that point about the geopolitics of of soccer and and baseball, I've got a good story from the Cold War that might bear mentioning. In 1970, the United States noticed that um, through through photography, noticed that there was infrastructure being built on an island called Cayo Alcatraz off a, off a major port in Cuba, and the analyst noticed that there were all sorts of soccer fields going into place, and there was no baseball field. And so all of a sudden, Henry Kissinger goes to Bob Haldeman, the Nixon's chief of staff, and says, Cubans play baseball, Russians play soccer. And the worry was that the Russians were putting back into place a military infrastructure in Cuba that had been taken off in 1962 as part of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And so there was a very real worry that this was a sign that the Soviets were building a naval base that submarines could be off the coast of America in much larger numbers, and it was very alarming. Um, but I think it says something about the geopolitics of sport that sports fields were looked to as intelligence evidence. Absolutely. We still see that today. Uh, we, we saw some satellite imagery of a, uh, a recent country that, you know, uh, what looked like a nuclear site had been abandoned for a long time. But then all of a sudden we started seeing uh, shadows from volleyball courts indicating that people were, were playing in and around the area. And certainly, uh, you know, lots of other infrastructure popped up as well. So these things are certainly good, good signifiers. And there's definitely a case of, you know, wherever deployments happen, people will bring their pastimes with them. And, uh, it, you know, it's easier to see uh, a soccer pitch or a volleyball pitch from the, uh, from the sky than it is a chessboard. Another thing that is, is kind of interesting, we just look at the recent history and then the rise of, you know, um, Latin academies, for example, in baseball. These are really, really popular. So you see a lot of sports teams of really starting with, I guess, the 19, I guess it would be 80s at this point. Um, you would have, you know, the, the Chicago Cubs or the Houston Astros or some some major league team establish a sports academy in order to get developing players in a Latin American country, whether it be Venezuela the Dominican Republic as a way to get young people in those societies that were playing baseball in the streets into a more formalized culture, formalized setting where they can actually start teaching them a much more, I guess, standardized fundamentals in a more structured setting. Um, but that's actually how a lot of teams, for example, were able to mine essentially for uh, fantastic players. And one of my favorite stories about this is how the Houston Astros, they were pretty, pretty famous for doing this, being the first kind of country to, or the first academies in um, Venezuela. So if we look through the 1990s and look at the, the growth of Venezuelan players coming over from the United or from Venezuela to the United States, it was almost always through the Houston Astros Academy. It would be players like Carlos Guillen, Freddy Garcia, and also um, Bobby Abreu. So, I mean, we do start to see, you know, 
teams at, at a team level always trying to get that edge and they play a role in this as well i think and that's something else that is something that is worth considering i mean i guess we see this also in soccer when you talk about now teams going into different going now with making connections to i guess the to people in the Middle East now for, for for funding when they have the selling. So that's something that's unique now that I think we're moving into or we've obviously already moved into with baseball where it's not necessarily just going to be the government, the military. It's more going to be led by the teams in some ways. Very much reflects the sort of modern business of sport. And I think, you know, um, the, the, the soccer parallel is probably uh, developmental academies throughout Africa as baseball has gone throughout Latin America and the Caribbean. And I think the heart of this is the Dominican Republic, where now all 30 major league teams have a developmental academy. And uh, these things are it's – they're an interesting beast and they're sort of a double-edged sword in some ways. On the one hand, uh, if you look at you know, Major League Baseball's numbers and perspective, they're pumping money into uh, the economies there. They're creating jobs. They're stabilizing sort of the predatory agent-based system where some guy would go and offer – sort of bogus contracts to a bunch of kids in the hopes that one of them makes it. Uh, if you look at critics, though, this is just a way to exploit cheap labor to kind of play on the dreams of, you know, these kids. Uh, and and I think like any sort of international labor situation, which is essentially what we're talking about, I think both sides have some truth to them. I think uh, the governments of these countries have welcomed these developments with open arms and baseball has improved markedly as a result. Uh, but to loop back to the to the playing style thing, I think that's one of the things that does get lost here a bit is some of the more interesting and unique sort of cultural differences in how we play the game. We're going to see less and less of those as these professionals are coming out of these heavily, you know, American influenced, American coached approaches. So, uh, and again, it's not necessarily for better or worse, but it's just it is what it is, and I think there's there's no way to escape that. Players want to make it to the big leagues. These teams want these players. And so the, the, the trade-off is going to be the loss of some of that, you know, strikeout or home run sort of approach to the game. And we're going to see maybe less variation between an American high school student and a Dominican uh, 17-year-old prospect. So I think this is kind of – it plays out very interestingly and it definitely has, you know, I think clear sort of connections to just the general flow of geopolitical labor and ideas. Yeah, and also, I mean, take an example of those are the, Venez the Venezuela's case. Over the last fifteen years, we've seen Venezuela have this massive political shift, going you know to the Chavistas, and now in an economic crisis for the last two or three years, um, we've actually seen some of those academies start to close, and we've seen a lot of the the young Venezuelans that are being signed by these contracts by major league baseball teams. They're now going to to the Dominican or elsewhere in Latin America for their academy training just because it's no longer as acceptable or as easy for a the Houston Astros, for example, to run and finance an operation in a country like Venezuela, which is just going down into an economic disaster with high inflation, et cetera, and having a worse political relationship with the United States government. So we are starting to see the geopolitical impacts in those countries now you know, feed back into the way that it's developing within baseball and within American sphere of influence. And so, yeah, so looking forward, I think for tying all these different ideas together is sort of what, what comes next for the growth of the game. And and I think like we've seen in a variety of American professional leagues, Major League Baseball definitely has an eye on, you know, moving beyond just our borders. And we've heard rumblings of potential teams in Mexico, the return of Montreal. Although I don't know, Matt, have you heard, would they be the Expos again or Le Expos? I don't think they or? can be the Expos because the Expos are now the Nationals, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't know how. Although in hockey, there's been all these sort of weird 
Well, we've seen this, hockey actually re-spread re back into parts of Canada. Um, yeah, so we've also seen the big one is obviously Havana. So, I mean, if we're talking about, you know, the post-Fidel Castro, post-Raul Castro era, you taking hold, the whole opening up of Cuba back to the United States. Now, maybe for the next four to eight years under President Donald Trump, that may not happen as much as it might have had under a different president. But we might actually start to see a big push of trying to have Major League Baseball go back in or go into Havana, which would be actually a, a hugely shift one. We know that they're, you know, they're rabid fans for baseball. And the question is, is can they do that quickly enough to sustain a Major League team or not? I mean, Mexico City makes a lot more sense, possibly maybe even a, a city like Monterey. But, I mean, I think that's kind of the big shift that I would expect to see over the next 10, 15, 20, 30 years is this kind of internationalization, not just of the academies or the expansion of baseball throughout these different societies, but just the expansion of baseball as an organized entity under MLB or maybe, who knows, 40 years down the road, it wouldn't be crazy to have an, a team coming up in like Tokyo, for example. I mean, even the NFL is seeing, you know, flirting with the idea of even looking to play, you know, even more games they already are in Europe, for example. So I think that's just an open question down the road. And I think that we're going to see that it's just a matter of time. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I, and I think it, and, and Matt's right, we don't know necessarily what the model will be, whether it'll be under the MLB umbrella. But I think that another possibility would be something almost like we've seen in in soccer's various Champions League, you know, Europe, UEFA being the most famous one, but they also do it in Asia and even on this side of the world in the CONCACAF. I think we could possibly see sort of a, a non-national team, a professional Champions League sort of thing, where maybe in the MLB offseason you'd have, you know, the top MLB teams playing the top teams from Cuba, from Mexico, from wherever it was in sort of a tournament style or a knockout style. And I think as soccer's influences crept in North America, I think the taste for that sort of format is definitely picking up as well. So that might be another way that we mm -hmm. see this play out and certainly make things interesting. As much as it seems that the rumors of baseball's demise have been greatly exaggerated, certainly in the next few years, we could potentially see a, a boom period as all these factors we talked about come into play and actually baseball becomes more popular than ever. No, I think that's a perfect way of putting it. And this is something, you know, even in my lifetime, every 10 years or so, there's a threat to baseball, the strike, the steroid era, basketball, football, all these things. But just with this international growth and the sort of history we've traced where it seems to keep shaping and reshaping itself, I don't think it's going anywhere anytime soon. Well, it's very well put and a uh, good place to finish up. Tolga, Thomas, Matt, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you. That concludes this episode of the Stratfall podcast. If you enjoyed today's conversation or would like to learn more about the subtle and sometimes less than subtle connection between sports and geopolitics, be sure to visit the Global Perspectives section on worldview.stratfor.com. We'll also include some related links in the show notes. If you have a question or a comment about the podcast or even an idea for a future episode, let us know. You can call us at 1-512-744-4300, extension 3917 or reach us by email at podcast at stratfor.com. And don't forget to leave us a review. We really appreciate your feedback, and your review also helps others discover the podcast. It just takes a few moments, and you can leave a review on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to the podcast. And for more geopolitical intelligence, analysis, and forecasting that brings global events into valuable perspective, follow us on Twitter at Stratfor. Thanks for listening.